It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of March 16th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This week, one of my favorites. UltraEdit has been my favorite text editor and binary editor since sometime, I think, in the 1980s. Back then, I used it to make changes to binary files, changes that couldn't be made with any other editor. That's when the application was in early single digits. It's now at version 14. And I use it to touch up HTML documents, to write TechBiter Worldwide articles, and to make text obtained from Word files safe for applications such as Dreamweaver. But that's just the beginning. So if you need to perform any of those tasks and you're using anything other than UltraEdit, well, you're probably working too hard. Version 14 adds what is called environments. These allow the application to display features that are most appropriate for the way you're using it at that particular time. These include settings for using UltraEdit as simply a notepad replacement to develop a web application. If you're a technical writer, you can set it up with features that technical writers would need. If you're a power user, a programmer, or a system administrator, the application provides an interface that works for you. UltraEdit remains the same in all cases. What changes are the menus and the icons? If none of those happens to fit your needs, you can design your own interface, the windows, the toolbars, the menus, the templates, and then save it so that you can use it in the future. Now, for power users, UltraEdit offers the ability to encrypt and decrypt files, an astonishingly powerful find and replace dialog that allows you to use regular expressions and even a subset there. You can use standard regular expressions, or you can use the UltraEdit variant of regular expressions. There's also the ability to search current files, all open files, or all files in a directory, or even all files on a disk. Sorting isn't a new feature, but it does allow users to sort a file starting at any column and to eliminate duplicate lines in a file. This is a power tool that I don't want to have a computer running and not have it on the computer. A new web search toolbar will let you search for a word that you've highlighted from inside the editor, but I have found that this feature, when used under Vista, can cause Internet Explorer to crash, so I removed the UltraEdit toolbar after less than half an hour. Unfortunately, that's installed by default. It really ought to be an option. Version 14 of UltraEdit offers a dockable named bookmark list, a dockable ASCII table. Now, there's one that comes in really handy if you forget what, for example, the trademark symbol is. And there's an improved insert color dialog that includes the ability to provide the output to you in hex, decimal, HTML, and RGB standard colors. There's also an improved save function. You can tell UltraEdit to save all your files or discard all your changes at your option when you close UltraEdit. And if Windows should happen to crash during an UltraEdit session, you'll probably, when you open UltraEdit the next time, be presented with a recovered file. Nice. With rare exceptions, everything I write for TechBiter Worldwide begins in UltraEdit. The main exception is when I'm working on a Mac-based project, and then I start writing typically in Text Wrangler, which is an equivalent program on the Mac. 
In large measure, I do this because these are fast applications that have, for what I'm using it for at the time, a single function, writing text. I don't get hung up in formatting because there is no formatting. I don't get hung up in correcting spelling because there's no as-you-type spell checking. That means I get the thoughts down first. Then I go back and take care of problems, misspellings, clumsy wording, things like that, on a second pass. Our minds seem to operate in one of two modes, writing mode or editing mode. You try to mix those modes, and you'll probably do a bad job of both. UltraEdit is a tool that can edit anything. It can open a Windows file, a Mac file, a Linux or Unix file. It works with text documents, HTML documents, Perl scripts, JavaScript, C++, and a dozen more programming languages. It'll open binary files if you need to change something at the byte level. That gives you kind of an idea of how versatile the program is. I typically use the text view most of the time, but if I'm working on JavaScript or Perl, UltraEdit will automatically color code the text so that reserved words, variables, constants, tags, keywords, and the like are clearly visible. That's handy. In the web developer environment, you can edit a raw HTML file, but you can also preview that file right in UltraEdit. That's neat. Any text editor can edit HTML, because HTML, after all, is just plain text. But version 14 of UltraEdit has that built-in preview mode. That comes in really handy. And if I need to make a quick change... fix a misspelling or something that I've gotten wrong on the website, it's very easy to use UltraEdit with its FTP connection to my website to open a page, write on the website, make a quick change, and save it. The bottom line when it comes to UltraEdit, this is an application that I will not operate a Windows computer without. If you need to work in plain text files, it's the best tool you're going to find. It's quick. It's easy to use, it's adaptable, it's up-to-date. The development team, this used to be just one guy in southern Ohio, it's now several people, release a new version about every year. And every time they do that, I tend to say, they can't do anything to improve it. They keep proving me wrong, so I'm not going to say that this time. Wait till next year and we'll see what they do. But for now, it's the best there is. And if you write for a living, you really don't need any of those other really neat features of UltraEdit. You still might find UltraEdit a worthwhile buy, because it will free your mind. Andy Markin is a PR guy, a fellow I've mentioned from time to time on the show. He works pretty closely with the DVD industry, and following Toshiba's decision to scrap HD DVD and accept that Sony's Blu-ray has won the high-def prize, he wrote to say that he has stepped away from the normal let's-beat-up-on-Toshiba approach to take a more realistic assessment of what all this means. Settling on one standard really hasn't changed the total picture that much, he said. The difference is now that the Blu-ray folks won't be able to blame Toshiba for holding back the success of high-def disc sales. Now that they have to really get their hands dirty and work, there is a lot of work to be done. So let's consider more of what Andy has to say about this. Clashing technologies are fraught with obstacles and dangers. HD DVD had Toshiba, the DVD Forum, and a few studios that were kind of maybe sort of on their side, and Microsoft. 
Blu-ray had Sony and its string of content owners, Panasonic, the CE industry, and a lot of financially grateful production houses. Everyone except Toshiba was certain that Blu-ray would hold the winning hand more than a year ago. The end was clearly in sight at the recent Consumer Electronics Show. Warner Brothers had issued their announcement after warning Toshiba that they were going with Blu-ray. HD DVD canceled a press conference. The next steps all happened very quickly, and we've talked about them here on the show. Best Buy adopted Blu-ray. Netflix signed on. Blockbuster signed on. Target went Blu-ray. Walmart threw its billions behind Blu-ray. And then Universal. Well, that left Circuit City and Radio Shack uncommitted. Some people say that Microsoft muddied the waters, spending money to slow progress for both, with plans to make it up on the Internet download backside. Well, that story plays except with the people who have actually tried to download HD video. Most people still prefer to have a disc in hand. According to Pew Internet Research, only 51% of homes in the U.S. have broadband network capability. We lag behind 10 other nations. Japan has 65% broadband penetration, for example, and South Korea, 94%. If you want to download a true high-definition movie, you've got a long wait, even with what passes for broadband here. At 2 megabits per second, you'll spend about a day and a half to download a movie. On dial-up, forget it. So, to make the download tolerable, the quality is scaled back to the point where it's just a little better than a standard DVD. So Blu-ray's biggest challenge isn't going to be holding back the flood of online movies, but convincing folks that they need to upgrade their players. HD movies are better than standard DVDs, but 97% of American households already have a working DVD player. Upgrading is going to cost those folks $300 to $500. Let's not forget what the economy looks like right now. And let's not overlook the people who want to make copies. Just about every computer made today has a DVD burner, and media costs 30 to 50 cents a disc. You don't want to know what a Blu-ray burner is going to cost. And the discs? They're still more than $10 each. So the truth is people are going to buy what's readily available, cheap, and has tons of good enough viewing and burning choices. That's the lesson that Sony learned when it offered beta to counter VHS. The VHS tapes didn't have beta's quality, but they cost less, and they recorded more. End of story. Blue Laser players have been slow to gain sales with anybody but the normal early adopters, and if you're one of those, you know who you are. Industry analysts like to blame the standards scuffle for the problem, but it just might be the slow adoption of HD TV sets, the limited availability of HD TV shows, high cost, maybe even the lack of decent content. Predictions are for sales of 7 to 10 million units worldwide in the next couple of years. So this is a market that's not going to move anywhere near as fast as CDs or regular DVDs. So lots of folks like to beat up on Toshiba, saying that they would have saved $100 million or more if they had thrown in the towel eight or nine months ago. But the decision was made relatively quickly for a company as large as Toshiba. And if any early adopters feel that they were taken... Well, sorry, you knew you were gambling. And remember how you bragged to friends and neighbors and anybody who would listen about your being the first in line for the player in the movies? There are going to be some great bargains out there for players, burners, and movies. And 
hey, here's an idea. You can add them to your LaserDisc collection. This week's stupid spam is a come-on that leads to a click-fraud scheme. It begins with these words. Every year, millions of rebates are handed out to customers, and companies are in desperate need of people to process them. The message then goes on to explain how you could take home $225 per hour for just a few clicks of the mouse, and it directs you to a website where you can learn more about this limitless opportunity. Well, before looking at the bogus part, let's address this business proposition that the scam is based on. Now, anybody with even a small amount of common sense will recognize that this sentence is fraudulent. Students, new moms, travelers, and retired persons need no prior experience. You can work from anywhere and work as much or as little as you please. Well, if people with no experience could earn $225 per hour legally, there would be no need for anybody to advertise to fill those jobs. The message goes on to say that the job involves processing rebates, a task that takes three to four minutes per rebate. So if you process one rebate every four minutes and you do that for 60 minutes, that generates 15 rebates in 60 minutes. Well, at least they got the basic math right. The average amount you make per rebate processed is $15. With daily payouts, your potential income is limitless and completely up to you. So how can you earn this $225 an hour for doing virtually nothing? Here's what the spam suggests. They say companies are starving for more people to process rebates from home. When the demand surpasses supply, wages are high. It's the economic law of supply and demand working in our favor, and there is an insatiable demand for this job. Totally false. Rebates are little more than legalized theft. Many companies offer rebates instead of reducing prices because it gives the appearance of reducing the price without actually reducing the price. Retailers like them because they can advertise a low price after rebate. Manufacturers like them because they know that a lot of consumers will simply forget to apply for the rebate. And those who do apply will often find an interesting series of rules. For example, you have to provide the original UPC cut from the box, after which the device cannot be returned, of course, along with the original receipt and three tail hairs from a wombat. The rebate has to be filled out in Old Church Slavonic by Serbian monks and mailed in a 6 by 9 envelope to an address in Minnesota. If you manage to follow all of those rules, the company in Minnesota will mail your rebate check in 8 to 10 weeks, by which time you'll have forgotten about it, and they will have put it in an envelope that is designed to look like something that you will want to throw away unopened. So by the time you realize you haven't received your rebate, the time limit for asking about it will have expired. And besides, most rebate forms say the company is not responsible for any lost or misdirected mail. So no, companies are not starving for more people to process rebates from home. Reason two this spam suggests is that if companies were to hire employees to do this job, they would need to spend a new fortune on hiring, buying new office space, management, and the many expenses that come with it. It would cost them too much, 
and they would have to pay people small wages to keep this profitable for them. The alternative is having people work independently from home. Companies are saving millions of dollars, and they can pass many of these savings on to you. Well, that's right. Companies don't hire people to process rebate forms. They hire companies known as fulfillment operations to process the forms. And if you ask any fulfillment company if the manufacturer is willing to pay 15 bucks per form processed, the head of that company will stare at you in disbelief. The spam goes on with reason number three. Companies experience huge increases in sales because of these rebates. Well, that's true. Rebates make them millions of dollars every year. But without people to process them, companies can't offer them. So basically, you can make great money because it's worth it for companies to pay you a lot to motivate you to process lots of rebates. Okay, big companies are focused precisely on the bottom line. If a company can find a way to save 23 cents on a $30,000 car, they will. Every penny counts. No manufacturer is going to throw away $15 to have somebody process a rebate form. Period. I mean, look at the rebates. In most cases, rebates are what? 15, 20 bucks? They're going to pay another $15, almost double the cost of the rebate just to have somebody process it? I don't think so. So what's the real point? You may already suspect that the real point of the spam is to make somebody rich. Well, of course, that somebody isn't you. Where would the bogus link on this spam take me if I clicked it? Originally, it would take me to a site called Your Group Media Info. But that seems to be just a front because that automatically and instantly redirects me to an organization called ClickBooth. Wikipedia has an article about ClickBooth. It's a company that appears to be a legitimate pay-per-click operation. Now, I've written previously about pay-per-click scams, and that's possibly what's going on here. It may be that ClickBooth is simply another victim. No matter what you do, you're not going to get signed up to collect $225 per hour to do something that requires no mental effort, no physical effort, just a few light mouse clicks. In nerdly news, it is the 10th anniversary of the MP3 player. Apple invented the MP3 player, right? Uh, sorry, no. The MP3 player was invented by a small Korean engineering firm that was acquired eventually by Diamond Multimedia. Diamond then used the MP Man as the basis for its first Rio PMP300. Before being acquired by Diamond, the MP Man was marketed, although not very well, by Sehan Information Systems, another Korean company. Well, maybe it wasn't the marketing that was a problem. Might have been that lack of sales had something to do with price. The MP Man contained 32 megabytes of flash memory. It could hold about 10 files, and it cost $250. That's in 1998 dollars. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I bought a small MP3 player with just 256 megabytes of memory. I use it to take songs to the gym. It cost me $10. The MP Man's inch-wide LCD screen was hard to see. For another $80 or so, you could double the memory all the way up to 64 megabytes. But to do that, you had to send it back for servicing. It weighed about 2 ounces, and when Diamond took over the product, the company added the ability to use smart media. Good move. Users could then expand the device. 
Oddly enough, there is still an MP Man website. It consists of one page, and if you go there, you'll need to read Korean if you want to know what it says. The Rio PMP-300 brought the RIAA out from under its rock. The syndicate managed to get the device banned, but the ban lasted only 10 days. The RIAA fled back under its rock when Rio filed suit. I wonder how many people use an Outlook calendar at the office but keep family members' information on the web-based Google Calendar because users can share what's on their calendars. It's a great way for families to share information. So probably a lot of people do that. And I wonder then how many carry around a pocket PC or similar device that synchronizes, but only with Outlook. If you want to synchronize all those calendars, Google has a solution. It used to be that I couldn't sync Outlook at home to my portable device because that portable device doesn't work with Vista. And yes, thank you, HP, for letting me know that only after I bought it. While I'm not about to enter the same information on Outlook at the office, on Outlook at home, and in the Google Calendar. And even if I did enter it three times, that would still leave out the notebook computer, which has Outlook and access to the Google Calendar. Well, this week I noticed on the Google Calendar there was a note that said it can now sync with Outlook. So I downloaded the Sync Manager at the office and synced the office version of Outlook to the Google Calendar in bi-directional mode and then set it to update every 10 minutes. I did have to remove some of the repeating events that I had entered on both Google and Outlook, but surprisingly, if I had used exactly the same words on both sides, I didn't even have to do that. It was smart enough to figure it out. It was about a 15-minute lunch hour project. So that put Outlook at the office in sync with my Google Calendar. Neat. Then I synced the Pocket PC to the Office copy of Outlook. Three calendars in sync. At home, I downloaded the sync tool and ran a one-way sync, Google into Outlook, on the desktop. And then I did the same thing on the notebook. Now, I think I could set this up to be a bi-directional sync at home, so that anything I would enter on Outlook 2007 at home would eventually make its way back to the Office version of Outlook 2003. I haven't tried bi-directional syncing on multiple calendars. I haven't done that because doing something like that was absolutely guaranteed to create a disaster with Palm devices. Windows devices, which is what I use now, are supposed to be able to handle multiple syncing. But if you try this and Outlook explodes, don't say you weren't warned. Google Calendar Sync seems to handle alarms and repeating events pretty well, so this looks like a very cool solution to a vexing problem. There's a link to the Google Calendar on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And from the Google Calendar, you can download the Sync Manager and set up your own Google Calendar. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of March 16, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.